0: Welcome to Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at com, and visit the Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider donating. Even if you toss me five bucks, it makes me feel better than as if you actually care about me. Visit www.writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click on support the blog to donate either by giving to GoFundMe through PayPal or you can support me by buying me a coffee, which trust me, is dearly needed. Today's guest is Katya de Becerra, who was born in Russia, studied in California, lived in Peru, and then stayed in Australia long enough to become a local. She was going to be an Egyptologist when she grew up But instead, she earned a PhD in anthropology and now works as a university lecturer and a researcher. Her debut, What the Woods Keep, was released in three countries in 2018. Katya joined me today to talk about blending genres in her debut title and how she found a publisher that saw that as a strength rather than a marketing weakness. 16-year-old Alice Burton has a crush on a college guy. But the night he finally notices her, so does her dad's creepy best friend. Wasted Pretty by Jeannie Beth Cohen follows Alice as she tries to protect her future, her body, and her heart. Your debut, What the Woods Keep, combines elements of mystery, mythology, sci-fi, and fantasy in a (laughs) contemporary setting. So was it hard to market that with so many different elements that work in the same novel?
1: I found that it wasn't hard to market as much as it was hard to sell originally Mm. when I was first looking for an agent. Because, you know, when you approach agents and then they approach publishers, you have to sort of put the book into a frame, you know, in a framework and describe it in a way that works, mm-hmm. and and then the publisher knows how to market it. But in my case, because I could really change the way I pitched the book, I was successful. I got an agent who was interested. But then when she was approaching publishers, a lot of the rejections that I got was, "We don't know how to market this. Booksellers need to know where to put the book. So, is it a fantasy? Is it a thriller? You know, it's a young adult targeted at young adult audiences, but genre-wise, it could be really." anywhere but then at the same time the publisher that was interested in the book thought that I was a strength so because it could go anywhere so I found that when I was marketing the book after it sold it actually worked in my favor because I could change it depending on the audience. Mm -hmm. I was talking with someone and then I would say, you know, it has elements of horror because, you know, it has psychological horror elements, not full on gore horror. And people would say, oh, I don't like horror too much. And I would say, well... It, it has other things too that might appeal to you. So that worked. I, I, I found that it was a strength rather than a challenge after it sold, but not before.
0: <laughs> you know, that's so interesting that you say that because I run into that at the same time with a couple of my different titles. So for example, if I am table selling at an event, I have a Madness So Discreet, which I pitch as a gothic historical thriller set in an insane asylum. So I ask people What do you like to read? If they say history, or if they say mystery, or if they say thriller, I can hand all three of those people that book, and it's still going to work for them because it's got all of those different elements. I, of course, am right in front of a person, so I can target and position it however I want, whereas a bookseller is just wondering which shelf space do I slip this into? So I understand what you're saying because I've ended up, especially with that title, I have ended up on that same hedgerow so often that people aren't sure how to market it, but at the same time, it's actually widening the audience rather than really narrowing it.
1: Exactly, and I'm shaking my head right now in agreement with you so much, but you can't see it, I'll tell yeah. you that I'm agreeing so much with all of that, because exactly it works in the sense that when you talk with people face-to-face, uh, like at the convention or or something, or you go to book club meetings, and you have all these you know different readers who like different things, and you say, hey, my book has elements of all of those genres that you like so much, so... If you like science, it has lots of that. It has lots of physics, and physics are used as an explanation for supernatural elements. Uh, but if you like supernatural or fantasy, it has all of that as well. And another thing that I found as a um, strength of the book that uh, falls between genres is that it interests readers. How they want to know how you've done it. Mm-hmm. They want to know. How, how you mix genres. So many bloggers, so many reviewers who liked the book came to me and said, I was just so curious, honestly, because you have all these different things. And it's uh, primarily, it's, you know, contemporary dark fantasy that has elements of all this uh, science fiction and mystery and even thrilling horror. And people just like, oh, what? That sounds different (laughs) (laughs) um (laughs) i want to know how it works and it worked for some people and they say yeah i can see i can see where like a science fiction comes in to pick up when uh, let's say you run out of supernatural i try to kind of fill the gap say oh okay how far can you take it so okay i can't explain it this way but what about this what about something out of a horror genre that i can bring in to kind of pick up or move, these transitions between the genres. So people were really interested how it worked. And I understand it may not work for everybody the way I've done it, but it seemed to work for a nice group of people that like the book. (laughs) So it's an experiment.
0: (laughs) Right, it is. And I think the thing, the question that also becomes... Addressed here is publishers are making the decisions about what people want to read. People aren't always following where the publishers are guiding them. So people might be really interested in reading these genre-bending, twisty books where we have all these different elements coming to play But the publishers are still focused on this doesn't fit into a neat slot. How do I market it? And I know that it's not as simple as just saying, well, it's a good book. I do write across multiple genres myself. And one of my critique partners has started saying, you need to just tell them it's a McGinnis. And I'm like, well, I don't think we're quite there yet. But yeah, I mean, and it is interesting because in a lot of ways, the publishers are dictating what books are being represented on the shelves in the bookstore, are we force feeding people or are we giving them what they want?
1: That's a great question. And before um, I answer it, I just wanted to say that I, I love your books and I've read somebody was saying about your books that she never writes the same book twice. Such a great compliment. It, it was said in a very positive light saying that when you pick up a Mindy McGuinness book, it's, it's gonna be a different book from anything you've
0: ever read by her. So That makes me feel very good. Yes, that's definitely a compliment. (laughs) It's not something that you hear that often. And it's a compliment to me as a writer, but where it becomes a stumbling block is because it's not a compliment to my marketing and sales. And that's true. So my books (laughs) are all over the place. And so someone that is a Mindy McGinnis fan might not Mm. like all of Mindy McGinnis's books. And that becomes a weird place.
1: That's true. That can become a bit of a challenge. But going back to the original question about perhaps a disconnect between, you know, what publishers put out and what readers want or expect, I actually found that genre mixed novels is something that readers, especially I had a lot of access to young readers' minds through going to different you know book club meetings or committees at local bookstores and Mm -hmm. talking with young people. And when I asked them a question, what do you want to see more of? And so many times I heard an answer, I want some interesting take on combining two genres. I want to see a murder mystery or a detective set in a fantasy world or Mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. Or a horror like a typical horror trope, but set in some kind of dystopian setting or a fantasy world. And that's true. Like, I don't see a lot of books like this. Like one of my friends, Astrid Schultz, her book, for Dead Queens, just came out. Mm-hmm. And it's a de- detective novel, essentially, or murder mystery, I guess, because they figure out who did it, set in the fantasy world. That is so unique and refreshing. But I don't see a lot of books like this. And readers seem to want that. But I think we 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 catch up slowly as an industry, right? But 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 by, by the time we catch up, the expectations might change again. Right?
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because there's such a long tail between figuring out what people want and then actually delivering it and turning it into a product. Let's talk about your background. You have a very deep background in anthropology, which is just fascinating to me. So, how does that inform your fiction?
1: Thank you. That's, that's a great question. And I love answering (laughs) it. So yes, I do have my my first undergrad degree was in cultural anthropology. And that that was back in Russia, where I grew up. And I was an exchange in the US also doing that. And then I got my PhD in anthropology, because I clearly can't get enough of it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, um, it's a it's a great discipline. I love anthropology. I still work. Uh, my full time work is in university, so I'm still very immersed in it, and I I have my academic research going on but i find that there's two things about anthropology and anthropologists is that uh, one thing is that we observe a lot and we look at how people interact and how conversations that occur between people the negotiations the social negotiations in society so when i was trained in methods of Mm -hmm. anthropology we, we compared ourselves my fellow students and i compared ourselves to spies it's like spying on people because you do participant observations, so you go, you approach some, let's say, a group within a society and you say, hey, I'm doing research about some phenomenon. I want to observe, I want to write down what I'm seeing. Is that okay? So you can kind of negotiate your way in and then you look around and you, you just see how people interact. And I think it helps a lot because uh, there could be a disconnect, right? Sometimes we get comments like, oh, you know, people don't speak like that. I don't believe that this could actually happen. I don't always get it right, obviously, but I think it helps because I do I'm always listening, I'm always observing and I'm thinking, what does it mean? You know how does the social interaction fit into our you know culture? And another thing about anthropology as a discipline is to understand how society functions mm-hmm. and not just a, like a big society in the global sense, but a small a community or a group of people or a family. Why we do the things we do and how we do them, and you know what is culture, what is language, what is identity, all of that we try to answer and come up with some kind of explanation of why that is happening the way it is, and how our background affects that so a lot of it makes makes a way into my writing and um I'm constantly thinking, and I guess I make my protagonists think a lot too, and they contemplate constantly on what's going on around them. And it could be a blessing and a curse, I guess, because sometimes they overthink. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I tend to overthink, but at the same time, I like to get into the very depth of questions, see how far I can take it. I did that in what the would Skip, you know, the question of what happens when somebody with scientific mind. And somebody who doesn't believe in supernatural encounters something that she can't explain. What will happen in that, in that limbo space between the supernatural and the scientific and how they interact? Mm-hmm. That's the question I wanted to answer, and I brought anthropology to help me answer it.
0: Definitely, I can see how that would help you so much. Because as writers, if we're not able to create a character that acts and speaks and moves and behaves like a real human being... Nothing that happens in the book is going to matter because plot before character is not useful. We don't care what occurs in the plot if it's happening to people that don't matter to us. So we have to be able to give real life and real breath to these paper dolls that we're creating. And I think it's really fascinating to bring... A school of thought like that, too, is I don't have a background in anthropology, but I do have a degree in uh, philosophy of religion. That helps me so much. Um, I mean, one of the first things that I always do now and I have to do because I was taught this through the course of my studies was that you are always putting yourself in the other person's shoes. Constantly, always. What is their perspective like? When I came into that as, you know, an 18-year-old, I was, as an 18-year-old and also as someone that had been raised in a certain type of environment, really thinking that the world was one way and then just having my mind blown completely when I go off to college and I realize that everyone is experiencing reality in a different way. And just having to open up my mind to that and starting to really build that empathy muscle. And if you don't have that, you probably shouldn't be writing. Absolutely. I think, as as you were saying that, I was
1: just thinking because writing is an exercise in empathy, and we hope that what we're creating will resonate with readers, and they don't necessarily have to like the characters, but they have to understand them and mm-hmm. see how it feels to be in their skin. And we bring a variety of backgrounds into this. Like, your background is excellent in just fostering just that. And I know a lot of writers who come from various social sciences, like psychology, a lot of psychologists who come to write fiction, right? And that's not a coincidence, I think, because we coming from the social sciences background, we we understand really well how human mind works Mm -hmm. and how people tick. And and also we as as human beings, we also want to exercise our own empathy and see how it would feel to write a character that maybe doesn't share our views, um, mm-hmm. still come off as a real human being that we understand, understand where it's coming from. So yeah, it's a lot of fascinating stuff. And we always bring our, our backgrounds into our writing, right? Like I I know people who bring all sorts of variety. For example, um, a friend of mine, she used to work in a movie business and she's fascinated by how uh, cinematic sort of thinking can also change fiction, how to write in a way to conjure images in people's minds. I
0: think what you're saying, too, about understanding people in general, that baseline of what creates a human being and all of the experiences and the environment and everything that has come to play into a person's life that creates them, that's how you build a three-dimensional character. That's how you build a real human being and not just a propped up, here is your villain, here is your good guy, here is your love interest. You actually are making a human being.
1: That's it. Yeah, we're making them out of pieces that come together somehow, and then hopefully we create something that resonates with readers.
0: (laughs) Yeah, hopefully. (laughs) Coming up, writing in your non-native language, and how Katya made the decision to write her novels in English. The love between Ella and Zach goes back many lifetimes, but they're not meant to be together. Can they fight fate? Or will they die trying? The Pathkeeper is a twisty, dark fantasy romance set in London, full of history, passion, and second chances. The Pathkeeper by N.J. Simmons. You and I have spoken quite a bit before about writers writing in their non-native language. And I know that that's something that you can speak to, quite a bit on different points so if you'd like to talk about your experience with that that would be fantastic
1: as you can tell I'm not a native English speaker you probably can hear it I was born and grew up in Russia and uh, Russian is my native language but I lived in uh, well I lived in Australia for a while um, and before that I studied in the U.S. so I was sort of immersed into English for a long time Mm -hmm. but before that uh, before I left my home country I was Already uh, really fascinated by English. Actually, I pretty much self-taught myself English. We had lessons in English in school, but it was never enough to really properly learn the language. It was very very dry. It was Mm -hmm. no exposure. You know, it was no exposure, no immersion into the into the language. But I loved music, and one of my favorite bands is Queen. I loved Queen as young adult, as a child. So. I wanted to know what they were thinking about, so that's how I came to learn, really learn English, is by translating Queen songs
0: <laughs> on my own. Wow, that know, right? that is amazing! <laughs> I what a what an odd little window into the language.
1: <laughs> it was uh, early nineties, so Russia, you know, is going for a change, mm-hmm. and things are opening up. And but there is a very limited internet access as well. And I need to procure lyrics to queen songs <laughs> to translate them because I want to know what they what they're, what they're thinking about. So we have maybe access to internet um, like at work with my father. My my father works at university. So he would take me there and he said, You have an hour to do whatever you want in the internet. So I'll I'll, I'll just go and feverishly download all this queen your lyrics to queen songs and print them out. And then I go home. Sit down with my little dictionary and word by word translate the songs. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And and you know what happens when you do this? This is before Google Translate or right, whatever. Right. You can't. Yeah. It's all like manual work <laughs> with a dictionary. And it it doesn't always make sense, right? When you translate a foreign mm-hmm. language word by word, so the, the end result sometimes can be pure nonsense.
0: Right. Right.
1: It can. <laughs> and it's just like, what? what is the song even about the context you don't always understand because the context come you know queen brought their songs in england in the 70s and 80s i don't understand a lot of the cultural references at the time and movies that they reference or um artists that they reference so but at the same time i was like i need to know i need to know what they're thinking about so i would come up with lyrics of the songs and i kind of remember them in my mind, and I would sing along with the music as well, very, mm-hmm. very badly. I'm not a good singer, but I would sing along, and I would kind of learn the pronunciation. And um, yeah, so that's how it started for me. And uh, one of my favorite songs by Queen, it's a bit of an obscure song, it's called Drowse. It's from the first early albums, and it's I understand it now. It's like about growing up in a small town and learning the world, but at the same time, it made no sense that uh, when I was a young adult, I was like, I don't know what the song is about. But it sounds really cool. <laughs> <laughs> when I was in university, I went to the U.S. for exchange year. And that was the first time I was in you know full immersive experience learning the language. And I was better than I expected to be. I was so scared. And, and it was okay. I could communicate more or less with people. So that's kind of my background of language. So I love the language. I taught myself pretty much the language based on Queen songs. And then I came to write books I always was writing in Russian as well, like poetry and short stories, but I never wrote anything long form. Mm -hmm. So of course, when I was writing in English for the first time, I had to write a novel. (laughs) Go for it. By then I was already, I was uh, in my PhD program, midway through PhD program and also in English. So, you know, I was already comfortable in the language, but at the same time, academic writing is very different from fiction writing. Mm -hmm. It's you know, academic writing could be quite dry and quite systematic, so it's not so much about the beauty of expression as much about the ideas, right? So as right. long as you make yourself clear, <laughs> it's okay. But fiction is its a different type of writing. It was just a fascinating experience of writing my PhD at the same time as my first book, and then I didn't even realize until much later how my bilingual status was influencing my book writing until after my editor, after they acquired the book, and I was going through revisions, and my editor mentioned that sometimes you have very unusual sentence structure. Sometimes you express yourself in a way that is different, and you get it. I understand what you mean, but it's just it's a, it's a strange way of expressing yourself, and it's not a problem or anything. It's just a different way of structuring or different way your brain works. I was really surprised, and then at the same time, it made sense. So, it's a bit different uh, thinking in English. And even though I'm very comfortable in English, my Russian language background still gets through. And that's on the technical level. And one last thing is the thematic aspect of it. Because in the book, in What the Skip, so the protagonist is kind of discovering her roots, discovering her heritage and language plays a part in it and I didn't even plan for this to happen but she keeps hearing this foreign language that's she doesn't know where it's coming from but it's in her dreams it's in her visions it's a very visceral experience that's the language of her ancestors hmm. that's coming through and I was like oh look at my brain how wonderful that it's done <laughs> that with what it means <laughs> I said this a few times in like different contexts but writing the book is a, such a psychoanalysis Oh, yes. uh, process right of yourself oh yes uh, people ask the question well, where did inspiration come from and then you think first you answer mechanically you know oh inspiration comes from everywhere and whatever I it in a dream but then it comes from a very specific place and it comes from deep inside of us from our brain it's really fascinating process
0: <laughs> it is and you're right you can Read a book and feel like you know or understand the author very deeply. Sometimes you're right and sometimes you're wrong. Like some, I think it is possible to write something that is very surface. I've never done it. I'm sure that there are people that can just write a book for the paycheck and not really dig. I'm not one of those people. I definitely am in getting into the nitty gritty when I'm delivering something. But I think it's fascinating. You were getting your PhD and writing a novel at the same time, right?
1: Yeah. Can you imagine? I don't know why I've done this to myself, but that's how it happened. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. I say this now. It's been a few years. But if my PhD supervisor heard this, she would be so upset with me. (laughs) Because imagine how much more productive I would have been if I didn't write the book. But hey.
0: You know what, what, though? I don't know if that's true, because my experience has been that the busier I am, the harder I'm working. So, I mean, there have been times in my life when I've had four different projects going, like one in copy edits, one in edits, one that I'm revising and one that I'm drafting. And I am busting my ass every second. And yeah, I'm hopping from project to project. And there is that little speed bump in between them. But I am constantly working. I work better because of it. The grind is real, but it's also effective. So I don't know that you would have been more effective on your PhD. (laughs) Because the truth is that it might have really driven you and pushed you and just put you in a place that put you in a place where you were going to produce on both fields.
1: That is actually a really great point.
0: And I
1: agree in the sense that you're right. When your brain is working and it's going into that uh, hyperdrive, right? Because mm-hmm. you're working on so many different things. Like in your case, like I don't think I've ever worked on four or four, four, five four. different projects. Yeah. Four, oh wow. Uh, but maybe they're also different. I don't know. Maybe... Mm-hmm you kind of have, you have to shift gears, right? It right. could be really stressful. And if, you know, you, the way your books are, I remember, I really loved A uh, Female of the Species. Thank you. But I can imagine, and I might be wrong, but I can imagine that it was a very tough book to write because you go into this dark, deep, you know, space
0: uh-huh.
1: and you disturbing and challenging and it's you know the things you do there is amazing but i'm sure it was very draining as well to, to you write. know
0: it was and then it wasn't because it is so visceral that it is just all you're doing is tapping rage right for lack of a better word you're just tapping into a like an infection right and it's just going to explode and everything is going to come out so uh, people ask me that all the time like how difficult was it to write that book and the answer is that it was simple because it was just like i'm lancing a wound
1: Some books happen that way, right? Sometimes Mm -hmm. you just up into that space and it all comes out in one go. Every book is different too, and um like for me, what the woods keep took a long time to write and rewrite, but Oasis, my second book, came out pretty much in one breath, Mm -hmm. and it was very different process because sometimes you have a very formed idea of what you want to do and how you want to do it, and sometimes. You need time and space to get there. But in my case, with the PhD, right, it was um very different type of work, and it was very mentally draining. They don't tell – well, they tell you that, and they don't tell you that in terms of uh, what kind of strain on your well-being and mental health a PhD program can be. It's very intense work, and in my case, you know, they – I don't know how in it's in the States – I think it's longer there. It's like five years program, but in Australia – Where I did it is three years full time research, or you can get half uh, half a year in addition, but on special request. So they really push you to do it in three years. Mm. (laughs) They really want you to get it done because otherwise you're kind of draining the resources because it's it's free. So it's we don't pay for it's a free program for citizenship so they want you to to get it done in three years and be done with it it's possible I've done it but it's so hard Mm -hmm. and you just you just in this space and you know in my PhD program was um, my topic was I was working with um, Aboriginal Australians who are very successful academically in university so I was interviewing them and talking about their success and how they define success and all of this was in the context of extreme racism in universities that uh, a lot of these ab- aboriginal students who are very successful are been expected to fail because mm-hmm. of their aboriginality so that was that was you know a very intense experience because uh, all my informants that I was working with were telling me how they strive against the challenges they described these interactions that they had on campus how it was constantly they were expected to do poorly because they were aboriginal and yet they were succeeding so it was it was tough to hear the stories and it was um it was i was so privileged to hear the stories but i had to had to do this justice and write it in the right way and make sure i did the right thing by my informants and then i was thinking how can i also maybe help myself not to completely my mental health was also in decline. and i started doing something that was like a pure outlet for me just to just switch my my mental gears and mm-hmm. do something completely different. And then I would turn and, and start writing a book. It just started happening. It was just happening because I think my brain was seeking a way to refresh and renew itself. So I would work on the book and then I would feel much more invigorated. So I would go back and do my academic work and and I'd transcribe the interviews and analyze and and do all the work that I was doing. And then again, I could go and write the book. So I was switching between the two very different projects. And in the end, somehow I've done it. And I think I just did it to really to save myself from mental collapse. Of course.
0: But I think it's very true. I remember when I was in school, I had a double major. And I was doing a ton of reading, but it was all analytical. I wasn't reading any fiction. And I remember at the end of my freshman year, I had actually hit a place where I almost felt like mentally unfit because I wasn't reading any fiction. And at that point in my life, all I had really read was fiction. And then it just got flipped off. I wasn't reading for pleasure anymore at all. I was, everything I read, I was analyzing and you know always highlighting things and making notes in the margins and it's like and I didn't remember how to just read a book and it was actually like affecting my mental health I couldn't just sit down and read a novel and I just sat down that summer and I probably read 20 25 30 novels that summer because like I needed it my brain needed to just have a little vacation and go do yep. something else and it, I wasn't going to be okay unless I did that
1: and for some people it can be something else just um, maybe come up with some other hobby or, um, be an artist or draw, you know, there are different outlets and otherwise we can just lose ourselves and it's not always good for our mental health.
0: No, definitely not. I just today, I've been sitting in front of my computer most of the day today doing various things, but always in front of my computer and This afternoon, I just went outside, and it's finally spring here, and I went outside, and I have wind chimes. I really love wind chimes, and I had three different sets of wind chimes that had become broken over the course of the winter. I took them in, but I took them in too late, and they had been, you know, frozen and then blown around, and they had broken. Some of them lost their, their pendulum, and some of them had lost had just uh, broken cords and so I just went outside and started working in my little shed and I just fixed all my wind chimes and that's what I did this afternoon and I came back inside and I was like, well, I mean, I just did that for three hours. That's what I decided I was going to do. I was going to sit there and I was going to fix my wind chimes. And it was something completely different. It was all fine motor skills and thinking about tension and tying knots and making things the same length and making sure that this particular chime was the same in the same place as the other chimes. And it was like very technical. And I needed to do that. I needed to not be in front of a laptop anymore. I needed to be doing something entirely different.
1: That's right. Yeah. And it could be changing your bookshelves, uh, restocking your books or fixing wind chimes, cleaning the house. I don't know. It's, you you got to switch your brain um, off once in a while or on and do something else. Yeah. Totally.
0: <laughs> totally. Totally. Lastly, more genre-bending books on the way from Katya, and where to find her online. Revna is a factory worker with illegal magic. Lene disguised herself as a boy so she could join the army. When they're caught, they both fear harsh judgments. Instead, they're offered the chance to join an all-women's aviation regiment. Revna and Linnae can hardly stand each other, but they must fly deadly missions together under cover of darkness. If they can't work together, the enemy's superior firepower will destroy them. If they don't destroy each other first. Called a fierce and compelling breakout debut that should not be missed, We Rule the Night by Claire Eliza Barkland. So you mentioned your new book, Oasis, which will be out in 2020. So tell us a little bit about that. Do you have more um, genre bending coming up?
1: So far, everything that I have, whether a work in progress or a book that's coming out, it's all genre mix, genre bending, genre blending, whatever you, whatever you want to call it. But OK, so Oasis, it's a different kind of genre bending from what the woods kept. Like I said earlier, Oasis was a different writing process for me as well. It was not in the sense it was easier, but it came up, came out of me in one go. Like I mm-hmm. knew what I wanted to do. I knew what it was going to be. And it changed slightly in revisions, but the main essence of it remained the same. So it's a genre make- blending because it brings together adventure story with some psychological, almost existential horror. It's about a group of teens who get stranded in a desert during an excavation dig that they go to for summer. And there's a sandstorm that hits and they get stranded in the desert during sandstorm. And when they're thinking they're dying, there's this oasis that comes out of nowhere and saves them. They come to the oasis and it has everything, has water, it has fresh air and food. And then slowly they come to realize that maybe being saved by the oasis is worse than death
0: Mm. (laughs) So
1: yeah so it gets dark and darker and darker and and that's where the existential horror parts comes in
0: (laughs) so much fun that sounds like right up my alley I hope it will resonate. I wanted it to be fun. You know,
1: after what they would skip, which was very, for me, it was a very dark process to be writing that because it deals with a lot of childhood trauma and a lot of insecurities that I myself have. have. And I thought, I'll write a fun book next <laughs> 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 and I'll write a fun adventure stories. I love adventure stories. I love stories about archeology. span And then it became also this exercise in existentialism and a dark one. I'm proud of what I've done because I think that book does something different. Um, I hope that it will work for readers. But yeah, that was supposed to be a fun book. And then it got really dark and it got really scary. And now (laughs) it's a a genre
0: mixed book that combines adventure and horror. (laughs) I love it. I do love it. Um... (laughs) I feel like I have never said, now I think I'll write a fun book. I don't think that's <laughs> ever come out of my mouth, but I'm always having fun.
1: Also, when I say I want to I wanna write a fun book, I think in my head what I see as fun might be different from <laughs> other people's fun. Yeah, me you too. Know, like, <laughs> I wanted to be an archaeologist as a child, which I suppose many children wish to be when they're little. To me, fun, idea of fun is to go away uh, for a long time, for an entire summer into archaeological excavation and be under blazing sun and surrounded by sand and dust and digging up like something from the ground. But to me, in my head, it's fun. In writing the Oasis was that it was like, I'm going to write about this teens living the dream in my head is the dream that they would go and do this for the summer but then it really turns really badly for them so
0: (laughs) i'm a very fun person i know people (laughs) meet me in real life and they're like you're actually nice and i'm like yeah i (laughs) (laughs) what did you think i was not nice (laughs) what did you think was gonna happen tell listeners where they can find you online i'm on twitter
1: instagram and facebook And it's the same um, username, the same handle, Katia De Becerra, just in one word. I try to use all of the platforms, but Twitter and Instagram more than Facebook. And people can just add me or follow me or tweet at me and I'm pretty interactive so those are the main ways to get in touch with me um I have at the moment my website is also my blog so I blog a little bit about books and pop culture and there's also a way to contact me through my website I'm very interactive I like I love talking with people and I've made many friends online so I'm very open and people can contact me through a variety of ways
0: Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis, music by Jack Corbel. A special thank you to fellow authors Alyssa Palombo and R.C. Lewis, as well as patron Stephen Avery for helping to make this episode possible. If you find the blog or podcast helpful, please consider showing your support by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash writer, writer, pants on fire and making a donation. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist.